0: In this episode of the Crumpled Papers podcast, I am joined by Jonathan Carone, co-host of the Unlearning Youth Group podcast, as we talk all things cry night, a staple of the Christian church camp experience, as well as discuss the role of emotion in church. This week's conversation is based around the topics and themes in chapter three of my book, A Jumble of Crumpled Papers. The best way to approach this podcast is by having the chapter read before listening to the corresponding podcast episode. The link to buy the book is in the description below. If you're a first-time listener, I would encourage you to go back and listen to our intro episode, episode zero, to get brought up to speed on what this podcast is all about. But without further ado, enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Crumpled Papers podcast. My name is Austin Oll, and today I am joined by Jonathan Carone, who is the creator and co-host of one of my favorite podcasts right now. in the last several years, Unlearning Youth Group. Jonathan, thank you for being here today. How's it going?
1: I'm doing great, thanks for saying that. that like, I know it sounds weird, but that like, it means a ton. Like, I don't expect people to say that about something I created. So just hearing <laughs> you say that is, is awesome. So thank you.
0: Yeah, no, Um. And I'll tell you a little bit here kind of about how I came to find your guys' podcast because it ties in directly with my book and I, I grew up in church, and at at church camps we had this thing called Confession Night. And I didn't know that it had this alternative name. People called it Cry Night. And when I found that out, I went online and looked up just Cry Night to see what the heck it was about. And the first two results that I saw were the title was uh, relatable enough for me to click on it. The first one was your episode on Cry Night for Unlearning Youth Group. And the second was your article on Cry Night for Christians Who Curse Sometimes, which I had them the owner on last episode. And uh, I was like, oh, this is done by the same dude. Interesting. (laughs) So I listened to your stuff and of course, the credit episode, it was like, you know, later on in the first season or second season. But, you know, everything you said was like, oh my gosh, this guy lived, was he like in the same cabin as me every year? Like, (laughs) Like, what's going on here? And I think, I think that's, a result. I mean, I haven't seen people talking to you about the podcast, but I feel like like that's a lot of the result you're getting from a lot of people. Is is, is that accurate?
1: Yeah. So there's the the hard part is your childhood church experience is so different depending on where you went to church, right? Your denomination, yeah. your the way your denomination interpreted things. Did you have full time staff? Did you have volunteers doing it? So there's all these things, but the common denominator is. There was something that we were taught that we took as 100%. This is the way that as we got older, we're like, is that really the way? And so we started the show because I had a friend tell me, I was having a conversation with a friend and I dropped the line. It's sad that so many people are having to go to therapy to unlearn youth group, the things they were taught (laughs) in youth group. Yeah. Because I I have a master's in student ministry. That's that's my background. It's where I started right out of seminary. And I love student ministry. I love teenagers. I love that age and stage in life. Mm -hmm. And when I said that, I was well aware that I probably taught some things that people are having to unlearn as well. Because I was doing the best that I could with the information I had. And That's the thing that ties us all together, whether we all had good experiences or bad experiences, or you were Lutheran, and I'm Pentecostal, and this person is Baptist or whatever, the the common denominator is, we were taught by people who were doing the best they could, but they're not perfect. So there's always going to be something to unlearn. And we joke on our show that our kids are going to have to start a podcast called unlearning the things my parents unlearned. (laughs) It would say if
0: you're doing that, that might be a good thing. If they to that, yeah, learning more, you know,
1: it that that I mean that's the whole thing. Like, yeah, we know we know now the mistakes the generation before us made, mm-hmm. so we have to learn from those mistakes to raise the next generation better, and then they're going to learn from our mistakes to raise the generation after them better. And if we keep doing this process to where we're trying to honestly evaluate in order to move us forward, not tear us down then we're going to get to a place that's significantly better than we've been in the past.
0: Very true. I mean, and I mean, my book's a lot about this and so many people's stories are like this. It it, it hurts and it's hard because Mm -hmm. it's not fun to have to think about the possibility that things you thought were true may not be. You know, it's hard to go from being so sure in one train of thinking with either general big ideas or or small intricate ways you live your life and having to like, oh, I don't want to get off the couch and change that part of what I believe or that Mm -hmm. part of the way I live. But it's... If done right and done with the right intention, with the right goal, and with the right help, it it can be a really, really positive thing, and not just for you, for, for a lot of people around you too. I think
1: absolutely. And the thing that I I try to make sure people are aware of when I talk about this is most criticisms that I make. Everybody has different motivations for their criticisms, but when I critique or criticize something, I do it knowing that. The people who made the decisions I'm criticizing, I give them the benefit of the doubt that they were making the best decision at the, that they thought at the time. Yeah, And obviously, there are some people that might be listening to this that the people who made the decisions in your life, they didn't have the best of intentions. So if that's not you, if that's not your situation, then don't think I'm speaking to that. But for for the most part, like my parents made the best decisions they could with the information they had at the time. And so, were all of them good? Not one bit. Like, I think of some of my grandpa was my pastor growing up. I think of some of the things that he taught me that I look back, I'm like, no, I'm not going to lose my salvation. Like, that's, but that's what he was taught. And that's how he came up to believe. And so, that's what he taught us. And it doesn't change the fact that that man's one of my spiritual heroes. He was doing the best he could with the information he had at the time. And so, I can critique and criticize that in a way that acknowledges. He did the best he could, but there is a better way. And as we learn more about people and psychology and sociology, and we look at like, oh, purity culture had a lot of issues that we didn't think it would, that has caused a lot of problems. Maybe we should change the way we do things or, you know what? All those kids we scared, literally scared the hell out of so that they would make a decision based off of fear those are the ones that are deconstructing and leaving the faith and deconverting because their only motivation for following Jesus was to get out of hell free. Like they didn't have an actual relationship. So maybe if we care about people actually walking with Jesus and following him regularly, we should change our tactics and not necessarily try to scare them to death and get them to convert that way.
0: No, that's, that's, I mean, that's my story. That's a ton of my friend's stories. That's, that's, what it is. And I think you had a good point there about about benefit of the doubt. That's what I've been learning a lot about this last couple of years, especially, because in many cases, in, in most cases, I'm going to say in most cases, in 95% of cases, the intention is good, right? Especially youth leaders and church leaders, because they're usually in those positions because they want to help people originally, you know? And it's one of those things where I've been gearing more towards. Not judging people based on the way they do things before they know something or are clarified on something or are proven wrong about something, but judging them based on what they do once they learn that the way they were doing something maybe wasn't the best or wasn't healthy or they learned the right thing.
1: Yeah. So here's one of the best examples I can give you for that. How old are you? I'm 24. Okay. So I'm 36. I'm 12 years ahead of you. Yeah. Yeah. Growing up, it was normal to call, to use the word gay for stupid. Sure, right. That was normal everyday life growing up in the 90s and 2000s.
0: Even me, I think maybe, maybe eight to 10 years ago, like in middle school okay. or something like that.
1: When I was in college, so this would have been, I graduated undergrad in 08. So I remember 06, 07, Lindsay Lohan was part of a campaign to don't say gay. Is was the original "Don't say gay," not the way that politicians are doing it, but it was like she was part of a campaign that, for the first time, showed us how harmful saying "that's gay" is when we mean "that's stupid." I right. didn't know how harmful that was. Sure. So yeah. I, I look back on time hop or. Um, Facebook memories. And I see some stuff I posted way back when, when I didn't know any better. I'm like, oh my goodness, I would never say that today. The same sure. thing can be say, uh, said for the word retard or retard. Right, same exact. Uh, and yeah. there was the whole campaign to spread the word to end the word. Right. And now we know better than we did back then. So we must do better. And so I'm not going to judge someone who did not know right. based off of today's standards for what they may have done in the past. I will educate them on to, Hey, just so you know, like we've learned what you're saying and doing is really harmful to a lot of people. And I will hope then that you say, Oh crap, I need to do better. Yeah. If you, if you then say, ah, that's stupid. I'm not going to, then we can have a problem. But if you did something negative before you knew it was negative, I can't hold you to that standard. I can acknowledge it. I can acknowledge, Hey, that was wrong but you didn't know any better. So let's unlearn the thing that you, the bad from that so that we don't do it again, moving in the future. And I think if we approach things with that intention, I think we'd be in a lot better place as opposed to either putting our fists up and fighting back when someone tries to correct us or on the other side, holding people to this impossible standard. That is today's standards that could not have been met years ago because that wasn't the standard and people didn't know any better.
0: Yeah. Cause I mean, that's the story. That is the story of the individual person. That is the story of society and of the world is living one way, learning as you go and then correcting course and changing the way you do it. So you do it in a better way or do things better. That's the entire, that's how you live as a human being from the day you're born. And and it's just different, different aspects of your life. Okay. So uh, along those lines, I mean, that's really the basis of a lot of my book and this podcast, but This is episode three, dealing with chapter three of my book. Chapter two was all about Christian culture and its different aspects and characteristics and idiosyncrasies. And a teaser I put at the ending was that one of, I believe, the most prevalent elements, characteristics of contemporary Christian culture, especially among modern, younger churches with younger people, is its emphasis on emotion and emotional expression. And in chapter three, what chapter three is all about is this thing called Cry night. Now, some of you may already be aware or at least know a little bit about what Cry night is. But I, before writing the chapter, really didn't know much about it. I knew that I had gone to youth camp uh, every year between middle and high school. I knew that in high school, all four years, there was a night on the third night of camp called Confession Night, where we'd all gather in small groups and confess to each other and then come back for a, a big, dramatic, emotional worship experience. Um, but I didn't know. First off, I didn't know it was a thing that a lot of churches shared. And I didn't know it had this other pretty on-the-nose term. So my first question for you after 13 minutes is what since you since your book um was used and gave me a lot of, of the understanding and knowledge for my own book about crynite what is crynite give us the rundown of what Crynite is and then i also want to hear your own personal experience with crynite
1: okay so before we get to that we have to acknowledge something yeah there is a difference between planning a time at a camp or a retreat that comes to an emotional head, a natural emotional head and purposefully manipulating the environment to create an emotional response. Absolutely. And so that's one of the things we have to be careful about when we talk about this idea of cry night or critiquing emotions in church. Right. So what I mean by that is, There's a natural arc to a retreat or to a camp whenever I would do them. So say there's four sessions. Uh, Let's talk weekend retreat. We have a Friday night session. We have a Saturday morning session, Saturday evening session and Sunday morning session. Friday night, I'm introducing the problem. I'm introducing what we're going to be talking about for the weekend, because maybe the kids that I'm talking to have never considered this idea before in their life. So I'm just introducing that and then giving them the space to, that night, talk about it in their small groups and just process it overnight. Mm-hmm. In the morning, I'm going to emphasize that problem a little bit and just show that like, hey, like, not only do you have this problem, but this is a problem that we have had since the beginning of time. These people in the Bible either, even encountered this problem and we see it. So I'm going to escalate that problem a little bit more just so they see they're not alone in that and that... It's a it's an actual real thing, and then Saturday night I'm going to introduce the solution to the problem, which obviously is Jesus, but can come in many different forms, and I'm going to call I'm going to call them to partake in that solution. There's going to be emotion behind that. Absolutely right. If if life changes involved, there is going to be emotion there, and emotion is not a bad thing. Manipulating someone based on their emotion, that's a different story. So the the critique and the criticism is that sometimes people would lead camps and retreats to emotionally, to to purposefully lead to this emotional moment and to escalate the mo- emotional moment so that they could get these big aha decisions. And I hope that whoever's listening to this, that you're understanding enough the nuance between like there's a natural conclusion to something when you're teaching something and there is a manipulating of that natural conclusion. And what you're talking about, what your book's about, what our episode was about was those nights that were purposefully manipulated into making kids come to a decision. And usually that meant that those churches would go home and talk about, we had 37 kids come to Christ this week, and then they would never follow up with those kids in any type of discipleship process or help them develop a deeper relationship with Jesus. It was just, Hey, they said the prayer, they're good. We're done. Um, Hopefully, hopefully they keep coming to youth group and they're going to rededicate themselves to Jesus at the next retreat or camp that we do, because that's, that was the natural conclusion of that. So To sum all that up, Cry got their criticisms because leaders chased after emotional responses and developed things and developed the program based on that emotional response instead of just teaching and letting the natural response take its course and let the Holy Spirit move in that way. In some sense, you could say, I struggle to say this too much. I don't, I don't like saying this publicly a lot, but pastors are very insecure people. Sure. When you, when you've been in a spiritual leadership role and people see your work and they make judgments on your work and it can lead to being very insecure. And so what happens, whether consciously or unconsciously is the pastor or leader will trust that they can manufacture an environment that leads to a response Instead of having to have the faith and the trust that the Holy Spirit's going to do it for them. And so they take it into their own hands. There's an old Francis Chan quote back from the late 2000s, maybe even mid 2000s, where he said, I could build a bigger church than Jesus. And he was talking about how with his speaking skills, with his marketing skills, with his, with all the natural talents he had, he could build a bigger church than Jesus. But the back half of that quote was, if Jesus not there, isn't there, it doesn't matter. Right. And so I think what a lot of, and here's the other piece you have to realize. youth leaders are, they're new to this. They're just doing like the, the door into ministry is through student ministry more often than not to have an experienced and seasoned youth pastor is a gift that most people don't get. And so when you're inexperienced and when you're insecure, you do things that, you know, you can trust. And so, Hey, if we do this song, this song, and this song, we know we're going to get this emotion and that's going to lead to something that will be a good thing, as opposed to just letting things take their course and trusting that the Holy Spirit's going to be there to move people. So I, I, I said a lot there, but it, no, it's really great. nuanced the difference between what we need to critique and what we should have been doing.
0: No, it's great that you said all that because it really sets the foundation for, I mean, for many people to discern if their past experience, Or even their present experience, what category it falls into, as well as how to judge that because there is a very big difference between if I was on the team helping create these week long church camps between going, oh, us saying these things and the way the music is going and the way the lessons are working, we are expecting an emotional response. Yep usually as the week goes on, it gets you know deeper and more serious and therefore more emotional. And you've made deeper friendships and that kind of stuff. So it's different to expect emotion than to force emotion. And one, I believe the difference is one gives you the truth. It gives you Jesus, gives you the Holy Spirit through these lessons, through whatever you're saying, whatever you're feeding these people. You're just giving it to them. And their reaction to that Will vary from person to person, but it can definitely be towards the side of emotion. Versus the the other way around is sometimes it still may be biblical truths and Jesus, but it could even be presented in a way that's more manipulative and forceful, or it could compromise, which I've experienced. Certain things are compromised, like 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 the 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 purity and the validity of the truths themselves that they're feeding you and the image of Jesus and the experience of God and the Holy spirit can be compromised for a cheaper version that is bent more towards an emotional response and reaction, especially from those that are younger.
1: So let me interrupt you with a a more modern example. Sure. So I'm debating, I'll drop the name. So, so one of the criticisms of Bethel, Bethel music specifically, um, Bethel is a charismatic group. They believe in spirit led worship, which I'm all, I'm hundred percent on board with that. Sure. They, they believe in spontaneous worship to where at times in the middle of a worship set, God will give this, the worship leader, something to sing or say that either they sing or say over the crowd, or it then leads into something new. I'm hundred percent on board with that idea. Bethel goes on tour city after city, after city, night, after night, after night. It is one thing to plan a spontaneous worship break in the middle of a song and say, you know what, we're going to, to play for five or 10 minutes right here. And we're going to see what God does in this moment. And whatever he leads us to sing or say in this moment, we're going to follow that within this window. Yeah, that's one thing. It's another thing to create a spontaneous worship moment and then sing or do the exact same thing three, four, five, every night in a row.
0: And claiming spontaneity.
1: Yes. So yeah. th- so there, there's a difference in those two things. I'm 100% okay if you want to say, hey, in the middle of this song, every single night on this tour, we are going to create space for God to do what God wants to do. Yeah. And then you do that. But if the idea is, oh, this worked in Atlanta, so we're going to do it in Charlotte, Nashville, and Louisville as well. Right. And call it spontaneous. That's a right. little bit of that night manipulation that I think is a fair c- criticism on, on that emotional manipulation of church. Some of the best moments,
0: I mean, not just in Christianity, but life, but especially in Christianity, especially in worship, especially in those circumstances, some of those powerful Moments that I've experienced are the moments that weren't planned, are the spontaneous moments Mm -hmm. that are just, that arise from God or usually, I mean, I believe it's usually from God. Sometimes it's not, but it still
1: leads to him. And And that's important. Yeah. That's an important thing for for whoever's listening. Yeah. There are things that people can do that God will use to lead you to things he wanted you to do. So they may not have had the best of intentions or God may not have been involved in their decision. But straight out of Genesis, what you intended for evil, God intended for good for the saving of many people. And so don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There may have been an emotional manipulation of cry night to where where your youth leaders or the leaders of this camp or retreat you were at specifically manipulated the situation to get a response. But you still could have had a legit response to that. Yeah. God still could have used that moment to move you closer to him and make you realize something that he wanted you to learn. So it's not just like rip the whole thing apart. It's acknowledge what was bad, but try to find the good within whatever that was.
0: Definitely. And I, I get it because people are hurt. So I understand when they go, Oh, I want nothing to do with it because it's, it's just, it's too much for me to handle. It's hurt me, right? It's caused lasting damage, whatever. And I get that, like the, truly, I felt that. But it's, it's very, very true that the, the unfortunate aspect of that is that there's so much good. And it's people, right? Imperfect people who get in the way and complicate and abuse something that's really, really, really pure and good. And that's the case for for so much of Christianity as a whole, of the church, of Crynite. Like I, I personally, the place where I am, I'm I'm cynical of a lot of things. Especially like like Crynite, right? Where where I I know what I experienced. More often than not, I feel, was a manipulation of things. Mm-hmm. And I didn't quite I didn't quite understand what it was until later. I went I, I went, oh, I didn't that didn't feel very natural to me. Oh, my friends felt the same way. Oh, we did feel manipulated by that. Oh, okay. So I'm definitely cynical towards that, but I also know that I've talked to many people, people my age, people older than me in their 50s and 60s that I've talked to where we'd bring up in conversation, "Oh, what was the moment you you gave your life to Jesus or, or the moment you knew that this is the way you wanted to live?" And they go, "Oh, there was this this there was this night at camp." And they wouldn't say confession night or cry night, but it was this night, that main night near the end of camp. That is that that, mm-hmm. that culmination night, the, the emphasized night. And so I, I do understand and do realize that there is a lot of good. It's just when that good is abused and warped sometimes.
1: And one of the things I think we have to realize is there are situations that were not good for us, but could have been good for other people. And that sure. doesn't necessarily make them bad. Yeah. There are situations that are bad. Let me say that there are things that should not happen that, that do like there are things and I hate that I have to clarify, but I don't want people to to mishear me. Um, There are things that are happening in the church that have happened in youth groups that were wrong, that should not have happened and are, I, I would say sinful and evil. At the same time, there are things that produced fruit, but it was not a flavor of fruit that you like. Sure. Yeah. And there, there is a difference in that. And maturity comes in understanding the difference in that. And something that I'm still having to learn today. Like I am realizing this more and more that just because I don't like something doesn't make it wrong. (laughs) Right. Right. I can think it's not best. I can say that's not for me, but I can't necessarily say it is wrong. And I think in our discourse, If we want to turn the temperature down on some of the stuff that's going on just in our culture in general, we've got to learn to be able to say that is acceptable, but I don't like it. Yeah. Because there are a lot of things, especially in our faith, that are acceptable that I don't like. Or, you know what, Austin, you read the same Bible I did and came to a different conclusion based on what you read. And I disagree with you on this theological doctrinal point. Well, then, then you're wrong. I'm sorry. But, but, but I acknowledge we are reading it through our culture yes. after it's been translated through multiple languages to get to us over the course of thousands of years. Yeah. We're going to see things differently. So it's just a matter of acknowledging, like, what are the essentials that we have to call out and say are wrong? Any type of abuse. Spiritual manipulation, spiritual abuse, those things are wrong.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Using the an environment in a way that I don't like personally. I, I don't like what Elevation and Bethel have become in terms of the, the kind of the stuff you mentioned earlier of like the overly emotional worship night where we're chasing mountaintop Jesus and yep. we're doing all this stuff. I don't personally like that. I don't think it's a sustainable way to live out a lifelong relationship with Jesus. Yeah, But it produces good fruits for some. And so it's not for me, but I can't say that it's wrong for someone or for everyone.
0: No, yeah, well said. And I think going back to, you mentioned how we all see things differently. And I I think we were created to see things differently. It's not a liability. It's an asset for many, many different reasons. And I think especially, and this is a later chapter in a different episode we'll talk about, but... I talk about how many churches are trying to, well, not trying to, many churches end up, whether intentionally or not, become very uniform in their members and in their ways of thinking and, and all that stuff. And I would say, apart from you know some very fundamental beliefs and theology, even theology people have different, but apart from the very fundamental basics, having a difference of perspective, on a wide variety of spiritual things can be very, very opportunistic and healthy for a church um, for, for many different reasons. I mean, that's why God gave us different backgrounds, different perspectives to take these things in different ways, see them in different ways, and then do different things with those perspectives. But I want to bring it back around to the idea of the difference between expecting emotion and forcing emotion. One thing that I came across after I found your credit episode and your article on Christians who curse sometimes was a Reddit thread, which Reddit can be a a dark void of (laughs) everything. And in this case, it kind of was, but also... There was a lot of useful information and, and people's honest, truthful experiences. Um, and, and this Reddit thread, the main question that the, the first post asked was, hey, I'm a church kid. I went through this thing called Cry Night. It felt a little weird to me. Did anyone else have this experience? I spent over two hours just going through this entire thread of hundreds Maybe, probably over, maybe about over a hundred posts from people responding with their, their own experiences. And in most of these stories, I mean, they were enough to make the person want to go on Reddit and search about it and post about it. So most of their accounts definitely lean more towards the manipulation, you know, abusive kind of aspects. And, um, you know, like, like all the, you mentioned the Bethel stuff and, you know, talking about spontaneity versus forced stuff. One person worked uh, in the electrical department of their church and they were in charge of the lights for the service. And they talk about being in meetings where the, the worship group and the pastor met beforehand and talked about, Okay, the lights need to go in this order, at this time, during this song, for the purpose of eliciting the motion. And this person just felt like, no, that's, that's not authentic. It didn't feel right. There was another one, um, and this, one, this was one of the more, you know, on-the-nose stories that I read on there. One of them was talking about how during the last couple of days of camp, they would have screens, TV screens, set up in different, you know, uh, public places around camp, playing on loop the torture scenes from the Passion of the Christ. <laughs> and, and that's obviously, you know, the, the, the worst side of this, right? But it's just another example of, like, where's the authenticity? There? Clearly, the authenticity has been thrown out the window because it's just about getting these. Young people in an emotional state. Um, not only that, but you're, you're you're trying to get them in an emotional state, and equating that emotional state with a connection
1: with God or the Holy Spirit. Whereas, can I push back on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, sure, go for it.
1: Absolutely. Okay, so if if we are trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who were leading that,
0: yes, sure,
1: they believed a theology. That hell is so bad we should do anything we can to keep people from going sure and we have the best way for people to realize that they need Jesus is to understand how bad hell is going to be and that you have to make a decision now so that you don't have to do that right. let me be explicit. I don't agree with that approach <laughs> sure yeah like I I think that is a dangerous approach and that it leads to conversions that may not actually be conversions. We won't know until we get to heaven if they actually are. But I, I, I'll give you another example. My mother-in-law, God bless her. Um, she is as Baptist as Baptist gets. Okay, yeah. Um, she believes the rapture could happen any, any day now, that the Lord's coming back any day. She's been saying that for probably 40 years at this point. Um, last year, r- around this time, uh, my dad died a week for a week ago, a week from now, a year ago. So about this time last year, he went into the hospital. And I remember one day I was driving that morning to go see my dad and my mother-in-law cried, called me crying. She's like, I just feel like you need to ask him about his salvation to make sure that him and Jesus, like, she's like legit, like cares so much. Yeah. She called me at eight 15 in the morning, boo hoo, crying. Because this guy that she doesn't even really like is on his deathbed and she's afraid he's going to go to hell. That's how big and how heavy and weighty her theology weighed on her. So your dude in the Reddit thread was being led by people in a similar boat. Was it a manipulative strategy? Probably. Was it the best way to do things? Absolutely not. Should they have done it? Probably not, but it's what they thought was best because their beliefs were so true that they want, and they did not want kids to experience hell. And so was it manipulative? Probably. Sure. What, or were there good intentions behind it? I would say, yeah.
0: Sure. What was the root of that decision? Right. Where did the intent come from? What was the intention?
1: Yeah, and and I think we have to acknowledge that. But here's the other thing. In that Reddit thread, yeah, the problem that that so many of us in the church are having today is that we see that Reddit thread and we want to respond to what they're saying. We want to like my natural response is what I just did, and I'm I'm, I'm having this conversation with you because I think I my guess is your audience is going to be church folk. It's not going to be the people who were posting in that Reddit thread. If I were responding to the people that were in the Reddit thread, I wouldn't respond to the words that were coming out of their mouth. I would try to listen well enough to hear the hurt that is making those words come out of their mouth or through their keyboard. Yeah. So, There's a difference here and we have to be, like Paul says, he became all things to all people. And that's part of this conversation. We have to realize who we're talking to and base our response on what their perspective is. Because if someone is hurt by this, I am not going to lead with, well, you got to think about their, their motivations, what they were going through. I'm going to lead with, Hey, I'm so sorry that happened. Yes. I'm I'm sorry. That was, that, that was your experience. And it's not just because they won't hear it. That's part of it but I want them to know like they should not have experienced what they experienced.
0: You truly want to help them and help their heart.
1: Yeah. But God never designed them to experience that manipulation or that shame or that feeling that was never part of God's plan. That was, it's a matter of living in a fallen world where we don't see the mirror clearly that we can't see things fully. So if you're listening to this and you feel like you've been in that manipulative cry night and that you experienced that, Hear me when I say, I am sorry you experienced that. You should not have experienced that. And it was not right for you to experience that. I want you to hear that first. And then we can have a conversation behind of like, well, here's why that happened. And here, and here's what happened. So I think it all depends on where people are. And we have, to. we being church people, being Christians. Yeah. We have to be slow to speak, almost like that's a biblical principle. Hmm, we need be. to be quick to hear and slow to, sp- and slow to speak. And so we need to listen more to the pain and the hurt coming from the story before we try to respond to what they're actually saying.
0: I mean, the amount of healing that would come if we had all choose to really, really practice that principle. And, yep. and it really goes back to a big point of all of this is the intention versus the execution, right? I believe 99% of the time it's good intention. It's just the way it's executed based on what you've been taught and what you yourself have come to believe about the truth about you know what kind of person God is uh, and the Holy Spirit's power and, and salvation, right? Heaven and hell and all that kind of stuff. Because those elements are such such central pillars that what you believe about them has a major influence on the way you live and tell others to live and so um so i, I continued on, on this reddit thread i kept reading and you know you know tons of stories of feeling manipulated or forced and that kind of stuff but i was also seeing a lot of responses talking about this Phenomenon that that no one really had a name for no one coined a, a phrase for it or a term But many people were talking about how how connected they were feeling at camp You know whether it was the result of a night of Some forced emotion and manipulation or not because of their experiences at camp They felt so connected, you know, not just to God but to each other and just in general and some uh, dedicated their lives to Jesus for the first time or decided that that's the way they wanted to live their life you know others just felt uh renewed in their faith a renewed freshness and sense of closeness and intimacy with God and the Holy Spirit and the week would end or the, you know four or five days at camp and they would come down the mountain which is usually on a mountain it's not always on a mountain but they come, they come back home and all of a sudden all those feelings of closeness and intimacy are are just gone and they feel Distant and like they they lost those feelings, like they had lost that connection. And many people on this thread express their feelings of well, disappointment, first of all, they felt disappointed, but also um, a lot of shame, as if the reason they had lost it had to do with them or it was their fault. And they went from feeling like their faith journey and relationship with God was refreshed and was on a whole new level forever and all of a sudden it's just gone and now they feel back to where they were before camp or even sometimes even worse because of the shame and listening to your podcast and reading your articles there's a term that you use that you've brought up uh earlier in the episode called the mountaintop jesus would you explain that idea um in a little more context a little more explanation for that
1: yeah one of my favorite books ever is this book called my imaginary jesus and if you go by, it's probably about 10 or 12 years old at this point, if you buy it, the first chapter or two is going to feel like you're on acid (laughs) and you don't know what you're reading. Uh, I had no clue what was going on first little bit. Like Peter walks into a diner and punches Jesus in the face and what, like what the heck's that? Oh, wow. Okay. Like, yeah. Um, but the whole idea of the book is Peter is trying to lead the main character, the narrator in this book to the real Jesus. And in that process, he's got to punch out and get rid of all these fake Jesuses that we create. And that is something that has resonated with me with sense. And I, I'm very aware of the different fake Jesuses that we create in our life. And I'm constantly in search of the real Jesus. Hmm. One of those Jesuses that we create is mountaintop Jesus. It's the one where we get to the top of the mountain and transfiguration. And we, we see Jesus more clearly than we ever have before. We see who he is we experience him in new ways and it is incredible it's emotional it like it's what we were made to experience and what once we are all in heaven and on the new heaven and new earth and sins removed and all those things it's what we will experience yeah but here on earth is an experience that we cannot continue chasing If we do, we're going to get burnt out, we're going to get worn out, we're going to be disappointed, and we're going to get to the places that all of those people in the Reddit thread were talking about. Right. Unfortunately, our church environments, especially if you come from a charismatic background, have created a culture to where we're constantly chasing those mountaintop Jesuses. Like you hear people go to a worship night and they're like, oh, the spirit was so strong and all all these things like you just felt God there, and yeah, that very well could be true, and probably was, but the hard truth of it is the day-to-day walk with Jesus is going to be hard, it's going to be mundane at times, it's going to be difficult. I mean, we're literally supposed to die to ourselves every day so that we can do the things that he has created us to do. Yeah. And that ain't fun sometimes, it's hard. And what happens is people get away from camp or home from their retreat. They were on mountaintop Jesus, and now they're walking through just the flatland, not even the valley, the flatland, the foothills that lead to the mountain. Yeah, the normal everyday stuff, and no one's there to walk with them to teach them how to walk on that day-to-day experience. And that's the discipleship crisis of the American church right now. That we are like we're experiencing across the board. That either you go to a church that is so focused on the day to day doctrine that you never experience mountaintop Jesus and are never led by the Spirit, it's just here are the rules you got to play by. Yeah, go do this, or you go to a church that is constantly climbing the mountain to get to mountaintop Jesus and then falling back down and then climbing back up, and that is exhausting. Yeah, the amount of churches that are teaching how to walk through the day-to-day flatlands, unfortunately, is a very low list. And this isn't the time to get into the why of that. There are reasons why. But what happens is these kids go to these retreats. Maybe they're not plugged in regularly. Maybe it's a Hey, we wanted to go to camp because there's disc golf and a blob yeah, and horseback riding or whatever. And we just so happened to meet Jesus in the process. Well, if your life doesn't change when you get back to have someone walk you through to guide you through what the day-to-day looks like, it's going to feel like something's missing because it is. And the hard part is so many of us did not have someone to walk with us through the day-to-day once life got back to normal much less when crap hit the fan. Absolutely. And I think uh, you
0: mentioned this uh, transition comparison of what can happen at a church camp and also at a normal church. And that's that constant climbing and, and always trying to reach that mountaintop, those new heights of, of emotion and, and, and connection, and whatever, right? In the weekly services, in every worship session, and in pretty much any organized event or get-together of the church, right? And that's something that I touch on a little bit. And I think it definitely seems to be, at least from my perspective, becoming more and more prevalent among the younger churches and demographics and generations. It's this growing idea that God can be found, or at least found more directly or more purely or stronger through emotion, right, through those heightened experiences. And I think a lot of young people love it because I think one of the biggest things that young people are looking for, you know, throughout history, but especially nowadays, is community. Many of them are lonely and many of them are wondering why they're here and what their purpose is, what they're supposed to be doing and they show up at church, and many times they're fed really good stuff, right? About Jesus, about the Bible, about their lives, whatever. But also in, in many, or in, in, in a lot of cases, I'm not going to say many, but a lot of cases, there is also tied in with those things the idea that, um, you know, the, these worship sessions or, or this, pre, this specific preacher who, who never stops talking like this in a heightened voice and really dramatically, those are what get you close to Jesus and God because your senses and emotions are dialed up to 11 right and i think one of the unfortunate sides of that there are many but one in particular um is that churches other churches that may not do that almost can't compete for a younger crowd in some cases um and i think that what that can lead to Especially in churches, not weighing the success of one's faith on, you know, actual connection with God, theology, whatever, but on emotion and on the output of people who come to church on a Sunday is more churches veering that direction, you know, with production value, with the fog machines, with the. And I'm not saying. There's anything wrong with production value, but when it takes precedence, the lines can sometimes start to get blurry with emotion and how emotion is portrayed and then what it means about your
1: connection with God. Yes and no. Yeah. Okay. Shoot. I think what you are experiencing a little bit is your bubble. Sure. And what you've grown up in and around. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what I'm seeing being a little ahead of you and my job, I work like about 60, 65% of my job is working with churches and ministries and denominations and those things. What I am seeing is a younger generation pushing back against that. So it's almost like you have two ends of the same coin and you have people who are like, no, I don't want that. Yes. I, I right. want someone to give me the real thing. Um, but then you have people who are, that's all they know so they're chasing it. yeah and so I've been on this kick that cool church has done for like the last seven years or so um and what I mean by cool church is the like the catchy sermon series, the edginess, the big stage props, the like the light shows all that doesn't mean we don't do production. it's just like that's not drawing people into church in the way that it used to. and what you see, is i have a theory that pastors default to what they the first what they did the first time they ever had success in ministry so the first time they had success they're going to default to doing a similar thing because that's what they know because that's what worked quote unquote if it, it's what worked and so it's what they're going to do and so um Even your pastors who are done with Cool Church, if they were youth pastors in the 2000s or early or 2010s, they're going to default to that because that's what they knew. And so when Sunday's always coming, it's real, it's really hard to change your perspective and to do new things. And so right now what we're seeing is we're seeing either older pastors who have an outdated Look at what people actually want, young people actually want, because they're in their late 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever it is. And so they think the kids want this one thing. And they're the group that thinks millennials are still in their 20s. Yeah. When we're really in our mid to late 30s and early 40s. And so their perspective is warped on what young people actually want. Then you have your pastors who were in their late 30s or 40s who they cut their teeth as youth pastors in the early two thousands or the early 2010s. And that's when that stuff was popular. So they're going to chase it. Yeah. That's one side of it. The other side of it is it's really easy to draw a crowd when you play on emotions. Oh yeah. When you, when you can get people to, to, to feel, <laughs> feel something. Um, and God can use that. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Of course. But what you see a lot in those churches that go grow real fast, Real big, real fast. And then there's a constant turn rate of we get them in the front door, but that side door and that back door is wide open. And people end up leaving because they get to a place that they want something more. And so the hard part of this whole freaking conversation is God can use anything. Yeah, no, it's true. So I think there is a place for the church that has the big, expressive worship machine that gets people in. I also think there's a, a place for the church that's heavy on doctrine and teaching theology that who maybe doesn't have the most energetic or charismatic worship band. They still love Jesus just as much as display it in a different direction. And chances are most people are going to spend some time at both churches,
0: which can be a really good thing.
1: Yeah. Because I don't think every church can be everything to all people. I don't think it should try. God is it, it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's my business. It's yeah. is like my business is helping people not do that. Yeah. But it like God has wired your leaders or a church's leaders to go after a certain thing. And they need to go after that purpose. And you, as the listener, if where you are in your walk with Jesus no longer fits the purpose of that church. Maybe it's time to leave in a healthy way. One one of the biggest, I don't want to say mind altering, but it was a very significant spiritual moment with me was church we landed at after I left church staff. We were there for probably two years, maybe a little longer, probably about two years. And I love their leadership. Like the lead pastor, the assistant pastor, like I love those dudes. And they knew my background. They knew my job. They knew how experienced and for lack of an ego stroke, talented I was in like seeing these things and helping churches connect with new people and all this stuff. And so we were talking about like this change or that change or how we can make this better and how we can make that better. And we've been working through this stuff. And I remember sitting in church one Sunday morning in May and we had baptisms that morning there was a little 10 or 11 year old getting baptized and there was a 40 something year old mom getting baptized and they did testimony stories about both of them. And the little kid talked about how great this one thing was It was one of the things we were working on to, to change or possibly and how that helped him see Jesus. And then the mom said a similar thing about it, an entirely different thing, but was one of those little things that we were going to tweak and change hmm. And I remember sitting there in that service and the Holy spirit tapped me on the shoulder and said, this is who I've called these people to be. Don't change it. And at that moment, I felt like if I were to work to change it, I would be sinning. Hmm. And uh, it wasn't too long after that, that we actually left that church because we like what we were looking for was what I was helping turn it into. Yeah. And that's not who God wanted that church to be. And that church is still, it's still relatively small, a couple hundred people, but they're thriving. The people who there are building deep and lasting relationships and they're learning what they need to be learning. And the church that we ended up going to is growing as well. And people are having great life-changing moments there. And I was, I have, have never been more convinced that God calls certain churches to do certain things for certain time periods than I was in that moment sitting in that high school auditorium with that church.
0: Yeah. And I think um, what, what you're saying kind of brings in, in a bigger picture, what we were talking about earlier in the episode, which was the difference of perspectives and expressions um, for each of us. And because churches are just made of people, I think the same is true for churches. And I think most churches, well, okay, I'll say this. I think every church that is in line with what god wants for it each play a very specific and distinctive role in revealing different characteristics of god and they each play a distinctive role in an individual believer's journey and faith and one thing i wanted to bring up um in response to what you were talking about about uh younger people in churches one thing I wanted to bring up was, what you were absolutely right about, is younger generations, right, especially 30s, 20s, younger, whatever, we are very in tune and sensitive to authenticity and Correct. thus inauthenticity. And I think a big reason for that is that we are marketed at so much and have been marketed at since we were young, young kids. And marketing, not just in the traditional sense, like a TV ad, we get that too all the time, but we have TV ads, we have social media where there's constantly, there's, there's ads between posts and then many posts are ads themselves. We are marketed at through, through companies and organizations who are now much more publicly available than, than in previous generations where we were able to see them and kind of in behind the curtain a lot more. Um, and thus, we're marketed at with people too, and we are able to see constantly, every day, examples of brands and people and businesses and corporations that keep their word, and those that don't. And because of that, over the years, we've developed a very attuned sense of authenticity. And in many ways, we've been kind of giving the muscle to kind of weed out the inauthenticity. And there's so much of it, that we don't have the time of day to deal with it. And I think this, this serves us well and plays right into churches and spiritual communities where we are able to, to really quickly gain a sense of if these people on stage or sitting next to me in a pew are authentic or if they're just facades and saying things and don't really mean what they're saying or saying things for a different agenda. And also, are the things that are being preached or the things that are being said or the way this church operates, is it authentically, does it register with me authentically with what I believe God says and the Bible says and what's true and what's a priority and what's right? But, but yeah, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I would say it started about, I think it started, Gen X started going there. Yeah millennials were, I call this the authentic authenticity generation. Cause we could see through your bull crap. Yep, okay. And then Gen Z just blew that up. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, they took the seeing through it and they, they won't accept
0: because it because it became so easy, like, right. With internet, social media, yeah. stuff like that.
1: We saw through it, but we still kind of dealt with it. Gen Z is like, no, nah, if that, we're, <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, we're not, we're not, we're not dealing with that.
0: Why waste our time? There's too many things yeah. going on, too many things to vie for our attention that are more important to us or absolutely more with wild, right? Yeah. All right. So, so last question that I have for you, just to kind of wrap it up and bring it back to a, a bigger picture here. So my book and this podcast both revolve around the idea of crumpled papers, which I define as the ideas or beliefs that we may have at one point believed with full certainty, but at some point have had to Reevaluate our perspectives on, or in some cases, unlearn completely. So, what I want to know from you is, what is one or a few of the biggest or most important crumpled papers of your own that you have had to relearn and reevaluate what you believe about it? Everything. Everything. Hey, that's a good answer.
1: I mean, when I when I left church staff, I went through what I it's called deconstruction now, but sure, yeah, I went through what I what I called relearning everything I thought I knew. Yeah. And I wanted to make sure that what I thought I knew, I actually believed a lot of it wasn't. Yeah. And so I had to, I had to change my views and how that impacted my, my way of looking at the world a way of looking at politics a way of looking at my neighbors of way of looking at everything. Um, once I really took ownership of what I believed, it changed everything.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's, that's really
1: true. That's good. That's another episode for, uh, for uh, I guess, a whole, oh, yeah, it's a whole episode I mean It's a whole right
0: series. There. I mean, there's so many. I mean, I'm not going to say what people's goals should be, but that's a goal of mine is to get to a place where, or not, not that I'm questioning everything, but to get to a place where I know that the beliefs that I have have been intentionally evaluated and I believe them for a fact. And I know why. And the ones that I left behind are intentionally as well. But yeah, good stuff. Jonathan, thank you so much for being... I'm so glad you got to come on for this episode because so much of, of what I wrote about in this chapter was based off of things that I learned from your podcast and your article. So it was great being able to actually talk to you about this stuff. Um, I'm going to leave a link down below in the description to the Unlearning Youth Group podcast hosted by Jonathan Carone and Eric Williams. They talk about just the Christian ethos of youth group, church group experiences. They do a great job of just discussing all different kinds of ideas and beliefs and practices that that we might need to... What is your slogan
1: for the podcast? We find the good, unlearn the bad, and figure out where the heck we go from here.
0: There we go. There it is. So I'm linking the podcast down below. Go check it out.
1: Jonathan, where can they find you to learn more? I am at Jonathan underscore Carone on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. So find me all those places.
0: Awesome. Well, guys, that'll do it for this episode. Thank you for joining and I'll see you on the next one. Peace. Thanks for hanging with us on this episode of the Crumpled Papers podcast. The episode may be over, but the conversation is just getting started. If you have any questions or comments or just want to say hi, send us an email at crumpledpaperspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and make sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date with all things Crumpled Papers. All links are in the description. This is Austin, and I'll see you next time on the Crumpled Papers podcast.